Hi, this is CL Brown with the Raleigh News and Observer with a special edition of the ACC Now podcast. Joining me today, we have CBS National College Basketball Analyst Clark Kellogg. And part of his title is All Around Good Dude, but that's the part that they don't <laughs> up on the TV. How you doing today, Clark? I'm great, CL. Appreciate that love, man. It doesn't cost anything to treat people right and be nice, man. And I got a lot of reasons to be grateful and pleasant for. So um, I just choose to walk in that manner, man. No doubt. No doubt. Well, you, you do it well. You do it well, sir. So, Thank you, bro. Um, Thank you. The news in the offseason that, that <laughs> I'm sure you've probably <laughs> already commented on a few times. Uh, I, I wanted to start just with, with Jay Wright's retirement. And look yeah. at the the big picture in college basketball because he was he was a coach I was looking at along with you know Tony Bennett at Virginia, um, it, it, the coaches that would kind of take the mantle from Coach K from Roy Williams mm-hmm. down and and kind of push college for push college basketball forward into the next you know decade at least. Um, so mm-hmm. did that catch you by surprise? Oh, big time. Yeah, it was out of nowhere for me. I had no indication. I saw Jay at the Final Four, and obviously he had kept it under his hat and had, from what I've read, uh, had made his decision back in March sometime that this would be it. Just didn't feel like he had the same edge. And I applaud him. And he obviously will be greatly missed because he brought everything you want to see in a college head coach to the table. Um, Accomplishment, um, culture of his program, consistent success, and even more than that, I think he uh, represented the highest ideals of what the game and what coaches should be about in those positions of influence across the power conference schools, particularly, but in all of college basketball, developing players, having success, being a very good resource for other coaches, Uh, much of that behind the scenes and without much fanfare. But I know personally how involved he is in uh, helping coaches um, navigate their journey. So clearly we'll be missed. And I'm, I, I was like, you see, I mean, as you try to look around and think about who steps into some of the vacuum created by the recent retirements, particularly of coach K and, and Roy Williams, Tubby Smith steps aside. Now, I mean, there are a number of guys that have had tremendous impact on the game on the court and off who are now just transitioning because it's the cycle of life. I mean, everybody has a shelf life and there will be other kinds of Roy Williamses and Jay Wrights and Coach Cade. I don't know if you ever have that level of Mount Rushmore type, but there will be other young developing coaches who will become Jay Wright was not always Jay Wright. Roy yeah. Williams was not always Roy Williams. Coach K was not always Coach K. Tubby Smith was not always Tubby Smith. So there's an evolution and a period of growth and transition that takes place. So you start not only looking at guys like Jay, Tom Izzo obviously is of that mantle and he continues to coach how long, we're not sure. But you're always, I'm always trying to think about who are the, 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 the second or third tier, those younger guys that look like they might have the gravitas, the acumen, the staying power to step into some of those roles that um, some of our great coaches have carried for the game, for the good of the game. And there will be folks that step in and replace them. But I was, uh, I definitely was surprised. Um, but I applaud him. I mean, uh, I think it's great that he feels that it's time to move on. The program's in great shape. And he obviously 
has a legacy that's um, to be um, admired and uh, looked up to going forward. And he, I think he'll still have some influence um, um, in an indirect way on the game. Yeah. So based on your answer, I think I know how you're going to answer this next one. But is there anything like can we read any of the tea leaves with his decision? Like is is the NIL is the transfer portal like the way college basketball is and the things that a coach has to deal with is is are are we going to see a little bit more of this? Like are, are some of the older, more accomplished, more experienced coaches kind of tired of dealing like you know they don't want to deal with this well you know well you know i would take it even broader than just what's happening in college basketball you look across the landscape of industry as what's and what's happened as as it relates to the pandemic okay people have left industries Mm. by choice yeah in many cases for the same reasons that college coaches may be looking around and saying hey i've done this a long time I want to do something else. It's run its course. Those kinds of decisions are being impacted, not just by, by just the, I, I wouldn't put it all on the landscape of college basketball, quite honestly. I would actually look at the landscape of the world mm-hmm. and what's transpired as a result of everybody enduring a pandemic that has shaken the foundations of all of our worlds, some more than others. And as a result, you're seeing people reevaluate what counts in their lives, what's yeah, really yeah. important. How much do I want to invest in the chasing after some professional goal where I might not be fulfilled, I might have other interests, I might have other passions. And this pandemic has created an opportunity, a necessity, an appetite for saying, hey, I'm going to evaluate where I am and where I would like to be, who I am and who I would want to be going forward. And if that means making a significant pivot, then this is the time for me to do it. So I think it's bigger than what's happened in college basketball. I won't dismiss the landscape, the transfer portal, NIL, the constant unrelenting scrutiny that happens because of social media, those are all elements and factors. Each individual has to determine to what degree they influence their journey. But all of that, to me, CL, is on the table. And I don't know if it's necessarily a trend, but I do know that the pandemic, we're moving to the other side of it. But being able to unwind all that it's created is going to take much more than just case numbers going down. It's going to require a significant period of time before we're able to see exactly all of the ramifications. But it's real in terms of people leaving industries and changing course in their lives because of what this pandemic has wrought. Yeah. Well, um, I guess I wanted to use that as a segue to just jump right into to NIL. Um, mm-hmm. Locally mm-hmm. here, uh, North Carolina's uh, Armando Baycott said that, you know, that that was a big factor in him deciding to come back. Like if there if that didn't exist, his decision would have been a lot tougher, he said, um, in, in mm-hmm. for another year. But I've I've heard a lot of college coaches talk behind the scenes about, you know, the, the phrase that comes to mind is the wild, wild west. Like mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's not really a a central, you know, rule for yeah. everybody. And and yeah. some of them are saying people are kind of operating in that gray area too, where you're not so sure, but that's human nature, CL. No matter yeah. what the rules are or the central <laughs> governing body or legislation is, there are always people that are gonna look to push the envelope and operate in the gray area. So that's not new. I hear it and I understand it, but that's not new. That has gone on since the beginning of time because it is inherent in human nature to look for loopholes. Well, do you you think in general, is the NIL, is this good for college basketball because of... Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's good for the players, the student athletes that play the game. And anytime you're looking to make changes that empower the student athletes and give them op- an opportunity to grow and develop. This is an educational component too. I know everybody wants to run and talk about what kind of money people are being made, but there's an education component to NIL. You've got to understand tax consequences of income. You've got to understand what's well, a good match for you in the marketplace. You've got to understand that not everybody is going to be able to get the same deals just because you wear the same uniform and play the same game. There's a lot of educational ammunition here and i would hope that people look at that side of it too i mean this is real life real world education which is part of what higher institutions of learning should be providing for student athletes and quite honestly they've not done a great job of it in the past in terms of total education some of that is on the student athletes you have to be committed to getting the education that your scholarship has earned you the right to get so you have to be it's a two-way street but the institutions have to take some responsibility. And I understand anytime there's something new and different and a little uncomfortable, it can make people, it can, it can tilt people's balance and paradigms. And you begin to only look at the sky is falling side of it. You've got to look at the total picture and see how do we make this work. I would love to see universal legislation. But if it doesn't happen, institutions have the wherewithal to provide some framework for their particular conference or school in this manner. And it's about serving and educating the student athletes, whatever the landscape is, it's gonna quiet down and smooth out. There are gonna be some outliers that are gonna look to misuse this particular opportunity, but there also are a number of positives that come out of it. It's a non-revenue generating sports, gymnastics, volleyball, lacrosse. Those student athletes now have an opportunity to leverage and monetize their brand and build it. And in many, and in some cases do it better than the revenue generating student athletes. So to me, there's just too much that's good about it. The, The growing pains are difficult in anything that's new, but there's too much that's good that can be enhanced and be accretive to student athletes and to the overall landscape of uh, perhaps allowing some kids to decide that NIL is a reason for them to continue to stay in school while they refine their games in hopes of being a pro. So I think, again, I think the pros um, far outweigh the cons when uh, you try to look at it in totality. Yeah. One other aspect I think um, that factors in is, you know, there there were a lot of other entities kind of pulling at the same talent pool from college basketball. Overtime Elite starting their league, the G League, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, 
and they're yeah. I forgot what they right. call but you know they're elite team and everything and I I, I think NIL um is helping with that too because great point so you get in college basketball point, but you're exactly yeah. right gives them yeah. another level of um competitiveness in that landscape when you can provide opportunities for kids to um, put some money in their pocket that might keep them from thinking about one of those other options because that's um income induced so yeah or revenue producing induced so yeah that's a very good point yeah well the transfer portal. <laughs> let's yeah, yeah. to that because obviously that's had a, a big impact too. And and again, I, I look at North Carolina um, where Brady Manick came in from Oklahoma, and also in the mm-hmm. the Alondis Williams also coming from uh, from Oklahoma to Wake Forest and and being the yeah. uh, player of the year in the league. Yeah, there are a lot of good examples of you find the right guy and the right fit for your system and boom, yeah. it can take off. But I also feel like yeah. there's a flip side to it, too. And, and sure. I, 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 we, we've you know, we're still kind of in the infancy of this, too. So I, I, I do think things will settle down and maybe we'll get to a point mm-hmm. where it's not, you know, 1300 kids every year right. entering their right. game into it. But just from your perspective, what do you feel like, um, how do you feel like the transport portal needs to be kind of uh, uh, not reined in, but what what do you think the transport portal needs needs to be done in order to make it where it's it's not overused, where, where we're not seeing abuses of the portal? Yeah, you know what? It's really complicated and multi-pronged. One, there are legitimate reasons that kids transfer. We know that. And transfers have gone on since kids have been on scholarship to attend schools. We know that. The number has exploded because now you can transfer without penalty of losing a year. You can't dismiss or overlook COVID's impact on this as well because an additional year has been provided to students uh, in terms of eligibility. So that, too, is part of the number of folks you see in the transfer portal. In the past, I don't know what percentage, but a good percentage of these transfer kids would not have eligibility left if we were operating pre-COVID. So that would reduce some level of the numbers. So to me, I don't know if it's necessarily about reeling it in because you're dealing, again, with human nature. A number of kids transfer because they think the grass will be greener on the other side. And that's a function of the erosion of resilience being taught to our young people. And that's not just a collegiate basketball issue. That's a universal issue across our country. Kids, millennials are not quite as resilient. They're much more ready to change gears. And sometimes there's good reasons for changing. But in some cases, there aren't. And you also have to factor in the influence that parents now have. They're in this thing. Helicopter parents are all over. I mean, my parents barely talked to the coaching staff when I was in college. I know I'm a dinosaur. It's 40 years ago, but <laughs> my parents rarely talked to the coaches. Now the coaches have to have a game plan to deal with the families. I appreciate being bringing families involved, but there's some level of you're stunning your child's growth if your parents are always in the midst of everything, even if they are in college. I mean, you're 20, 21, 22 You should be, again, stepping away from that type of influence. But 
all of that is part of it. So I don't know if you do anything because trans, hey, it wasn't until recently, hey, every other sport outside of men's and women's basketball and football and maybe one other, you could transfer with no penalty. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's been going on forever. And I didn't realize that until just recently. I thought that was a universal student athlete on scholarship rule. No, it wasn't. It was just for select sports. So again, I'm all for empowered. Hey, you shouldn't be penalized for being on scholarship, CL. That's why I'm so in favor of NL. I went in I I went through it when I was recruited in 1980. I got my license as a uh, as I, I was licensed as a as an independent insurance agent through one of my mentors who I worked with during the summer. And because I was an Ohio State student athlete, I got investigated by the NCA because they felt like I would have an unfair advantage because of my name and recognition and being a student athlete to capitalize on what I had done legitimately and legally to be licensed to sell insurance with an eye on taking advantage of my notoriety and my name recognition and my mentor's network of contacts to be able to do during the summer, solicit some of our supporters to perhaps have them buy insurance with me. They were going to buy it, but they shut all of that down. NIL provides you an opportunity to not have to worry about that now. And that, again, another reason, empowering student athletes and giving them a relatively similar playing field to what non-student athletes are able Non-student athletes can transfer whenever they want to, yeah. and it's not a big deal. You're so way ahead me, of the game, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah. I was a little bit, but I had great people in my corner, and uh, I knew basketball wasn't going to be the totality of my life. It was a huge part of it, but at some point it was going to end, whether it was because of injury or just time passing on. So I was thinking about um, what I might be doing and. I love business and was intrigued by it. But anyway, that's off the subject. But no, I think the transfer portal is just going to have to weather this storm of exploding numbers because of unique circumstances. It's new, first time, couple years, and you've got COVID on top of that. Then eventually I think it'll find its level. And uh, it'll be a continuing part of the game of college basketball. And more teams will be able to stay good and get good as Bill Self said, without significant dips because of the ability to recruit uh, ready-made college players from the transfer portal versus solely building through recruiting and developing players uh, from the high school level. Yeah, from from, uh, conversations you've had, have you noticed any uh, any shift in terms of that recruiting? Like, do, do you feel like college coaches are now checking that portal first and, and oh, yeah. less oh, yeah. emphasis yeah. on I mean, high school kids? Yeah. I, yeah, you know, I think it's a combination, I think, depending on which coaches you look at. But clearly all coaches are aware of the transfer portal and are stepping into it as soon as guys are in there. Because, again, you've got mature, college-ready guys. There's some value and benefit to that. I mean, you're not waiting for somebody to develop. You're not waiting for them to um, become college ready. All that goes into that. It's not just the training and the games and the film study. It's also adjusting to the academic rigor, the travel. I mean, there's a huge adjustment you have to make from high school to college. And that's not always a smooth journey. If you've already gone that route, then clearly you're a step ahead. So I think college coaches um, are blending the two. Um, I do think it will probably squeeze the numbers of high school players that are offered scholarships initially. It's not going to dry it up, but it will change it 
in terms of the um, equation. Uh, but Ohio State has four or five freshmen on board to sign, have, that have signed and are, are coming in, and they've added a couple of transfers because you're going to lose players. So I think it's going to be uh, fairly – I think it'll be noticeable but not significant in terms of the shift from the high school kids. I think that's still going to be a foundational piece of how most schools build their programs. But the transfer portal will be a factor in, in how you build out your, your roster completely. Yeah, it gives you another, another tool for which you can build your roster. And we know there are some coaches, um, CL, you've covered the game long enough. I mean, there are some coaches that have, has always kind of leaned the JC or transfer yeah. route uh, based on the institution, location of the school, any number of factors. So I don't think that goes away. Uh, I think it will continue to be a blend, though, of, uh, with the transfer portal maybe getting a little more attention. Well, it's certainly getting more attention than it used to uh, because they're more ready, ready-made available players in it every year. Yeah, well, before we – look ahead to next season. I, I wanted to flash back to the final four into the season that was um, as a neutral observer, no connection to the mm-hmm. triangle. What did you think about that North Carolina and Duke final four game? Just kind of the the buzz and the atmosphere that went into it. And then the, the actual game itself kind of living up to, to the expectations. Historic iconic once in a lifetime there will never be another first time that those two teams meet in the tournament and that's one of the beauties of it it happened and it in my mind exceeded expectations in terms of the game so when you factor all of that into it it was just an amazing amazing component of a tournament that was the first tournament that was like the pre-COVID tournaments. So you you look at all of those elements, man. It was just, um, it was almost, um, it was so unique and so uh, almost fitting in so many ways when you think when you think about no tournament in twenty, a quarantine single location event last year and this being the first tournament outside of COVID protocol and restrictions in New Orleans and to have those teams meet in the final four Duke and Carolina in the last year of Coach K it almost seems as though the basketball gods wanted to give us those of us that are um, immersed in this world something really special coming out of um, two difficult um, seasons. And that was the culmination of it in my mind. That was the cherry on the ice cream or the uh, ice cream with the apple pie. It was that extra sweetener that uh, was not only memorable, but was exciting and, uh, and life-giving. It filled us in a way that I don't think we can be filled again because, again, it was the first time yeah. those teams had met in the tournament. 
and to have it happen in the final four when it did, uh, that is just uh, awesome. So historic, iconic, awesome, life-giving, special, memorable. Uh, Those are just a few of the adjectives uh, that come to mind as I reflect on it. Even now, I mean, I felt that way as it was happening. And now to think about it after your question, that's what uh, resonates, man. It was... uh, it was um, it was special, man. Really special. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so with with both of them making the final four, and Miami being three of the elite eight teams for the ACC, yeah. um, it it kind of to me <clears throat> the narrative during the year was that the ACC was down, and then you see yeah. you know those three teams kind of rise. But I yeah. I think it's it still was a down year in the league, like. <laughs> But they had no doubt, no, no like, doubt, man. I'm so glad you said it that way. Go ahead, finish, <laughs> and I'll, I'll fight there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to to get your take on that because I, I, the ACC, there's, there's, you know, I grew up in Winston Salem, so I've, I've, I've always been about the ACC, and sure, there's, sure, there's a certain standard that I felt like in these past couple yeah. of years, it's, it's kind of dipped, and I, and I looked at talent level being one of the reasons because they're not getting uh, across the board in the league. I mean, Duke, Duke is the exception. (laughs) The rest of the teams aren't getting the high level talents that, uh, you know, we've come Mm -hmm. to expect. And, and I think the reason for this success though, is a team like Miami had a lot of moving parts, transfer portal, you know, more coming after Chris likes leaves. Um, and it took a little while longer for them to kind of get in sync, which which explains, you know, the non-conference, how the league really didn't yep. have those marquee wins in a non-conference play. But um, but still, <laughs> I felt like it was yeah. a step back for the league. So, um, yeah. you know, not that it's going to stay that way, but that's kind of like you say, yeah. in the circle of life earlier, like that, that's, that's yeah. what it was this year. So. You no, are. no, I concur, with, <laughs> I concur with your analysis completely. I mean, Shaka Smart said it best, and I'm paraphrasing a quote that he shared with me. Uh, the tournament can make mediocre during the regular season look great, and great during the regular season look mediocre. Yeah. And that's the reality. You can have a wonderful conference season in terms of competitiveness within the conference, non-conference wins across your conference and that is legitimately an indication of your conference strength and then in the case of the big 10 you can flame out in the tournament but that doesn't change the fact that you had a really strong regular season conference year it just means that your teams didn't do quite as well in the tournament those are both true and two things can be true at the same time So I've never, conferences don't win titles. Teams that represent a league win the championship. Kansas won the national championship. They are not hanging banners at Baylor (laughs) or TCU or any of the other places that are in that conference. Yes, they get some shine from it because they're members of the conference, but the team that takes that trophy home is a team, not a conference. So I've always differentiated. I understand the debate. It's good barbershop 
Talk Radio podcast debate. People are asking me why hasn't the Big Ten won a national championship since 2000? A couple of reasons. It's really hard, for one. It's really hard. And they've had some chances, and they didn't do it. I don't know if there's any other reasons. You look at talent level, typically you've got to have one or two pros on your roster when you're a championship team. And the Big Ten has had teams that have had that criteria box checked. Wisconsin got to the five championship game, couldn't quite get it done against Duke. Uh, Michigan got there. Michigan State's been to multiple Final Fours. It's hard. They'll eventually grab one. But to your point, you can be really good in the regular season as a conference. And then depending on matchups and how you fare, it could uh, go the other way in the tournament. So uh, the ACC's, to your point, um, down year, according to their standards traditionally, is legit. It was a down year in the ACC. They had a marvelous tournament. The Pac-12 did the same thing last year. UCLA and Oregon State were nowhere on anybody's tournament predictions prior to Selection Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Nowhere. And Oregon State won the Pac-12 tournament, and UCLA went from first four to the final four and had to win in overtime against Michigan State in the first four games that the Spartans teed up for them on a room service platter. <laughs> and then they got to the then they then they got to the So that's that's how thin the margin is, CL. That's yeah, my point. Yeah. No, it's very, and you can go back to any you can go back to any tournament, any tournament, and see where it was a razor thin line. Shaka Smart did not win a tournament game in his time at Texas. They did something they had never done in the turn in the school's history last year when they won. I'm talking about the season before this season, when they won the Big 12 Conference Tournament. No team in Texas history had ever done that. Then they lose to Abilene Christian in an aberration of a game where they couldn't make it. And that's the tournament. Yeah. That's yeah. how hard and that's how fragile it is. So I look at it with that context in mind. Jay Wright, how long was it? Before? They were ready to run him out of Villanova, his first he was the guy dubbed. He was like a guy in golf, best player that never went a major. Yeah. How long was that for him? How long was that for him? He was getting beaten the first round, second round, high seeds. Then they finally broke through, got to the final four in 09. And then he gets to, to the final four in 16, and he's got a team he doesn't think has any chance to win it. And they win it. Then comes back in 18 wins. It gets to their – so it's fragile, man. It's really yeah, fragile. Yeah. So. The, so that's the 16 I mean, championship like for Nova is still want... a sore spot around here. <laughs> What's that now? Fans. I said that 16 Nova championship is still a sore spot for Carolina fans around here. Yeah, but they had Carolina rebounding and got it in the 17. Yeah, yeah. Right, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? <laughs> and you know what? And how much of that pain and disappointment of the prior year was part of why they won it in 17? Oh, that was that was that was that was all of it. That yeah, was, that, <laughs> that was so. The redemption. So would you tour. rather have sixteen or go through sixteen and get seventeen? I know the Carolina folks who want sixteen and seventeen. I know the answer to that. Yes, but <laughs> but, but, but the reality, I think if they win sixteen, I don't think they get seventeen. You know what I mean? My point. That's my point. Sometimes you got to go through the crucible of disappointment, tremendous disappointment. You've seen it in all levels of sport, man whether it's individual or team, sometimes the pain of losing can fuel you to your next great triumph, man. You got to have the rain and the sunshine to grow, bro. Yes, yes. Well, that that's a good 
way to look at it, talking about specifically North Carolina for next year. Now, Caleb Love made it official uh, on Sunday that he's returning. So that's their four, four starters who could return are, are back. Mm-hmm. Um, Brady Manick obviously only had his one year as a grad transfer and, and uh, is out of eligibility now. But um, where do you see Carolina falling in terms of nationally um, going into next season? Uh, would would preseason number one be too much? Are, are they, you know, top five, top 10? Where do you see them on, on, on your radar? Well, you know what? I have to punt on that kind of question simply because, CL, I really kind of divest myself of any preseason prognostications or thoughts once we crown the champion this year. So I've yet to even, I've yet to even contemplate where people might be. I look at headlines and coaching changes only occasionally from now until September. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just like to to clear my hard drive for a few months and then fully immerse immerse some. Come, um, yeah. come Labor Day. So I would, I would say certainly. I mean, just based on returning players and not even looking at the rest of the landscape, top five is probably the basement. I mean, I would think top five would be the basement um, for where they might be ranked preseason uh, with the guys coming back and the rest of the landscape as it is in college hoops. I don't anticipate them being much below. I mean, I'd be surprised if they were were any lower than that. Again, without having done any real significant analysis on it yeah well I, I was gonna just kind of pivot from that to say you know we talked about the the ACC being down last year but now looking at on paper what will be yeah. a strong Duke team with with number mm-hmm. one recruiting class coming in uh Virginia had good news yeah. with, with basically Kihai Clark coming back and and all the rest yeah. of their guys I I, I want to say they're starting five might be back um, it, wow. It's definitely enough guys to where, you know, where kind of inexperienced in Tony Bennett's system last year was was what mm-hmm. I like kept them from really hitting their stride. That that shouldn't be a problem going into next season. They, they should have an experienced and strong team. So it seems like the pendulum is is going to be back to where, you know, we expect the ACC um, uh, next season. But I, I wanted to ask and, and wrap this up. I know I'm getting long here. Um, with John Shire officially mm-hmm. becoming the head coach at Duke and, and going to be putting his imprint on, uh, on the program next season. Uh, what's your take just on, you know, I, I jokingly have said Hubert just raised the bar for John <laughs> making <it the laughs> championship game in, in the first, uh, first year that kind of adds to the rivalry, but in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, how, how, how difficult of a position do you think that will be for Shire um, kind of emerging from K's shadow? Or do you think that will be a factor at all? Do you think he's he's positioned to just, you know, do his own thing? Yeah, I think he'll be fine. Again, time will tell, but it's going to take time. The adjustment period from, you know, that adjustment and the level of intensity that takes place from that shift of six to eight inches it's significant, man. There's things that you just don't know or learn until you become a head coach. There's a way to prepare, and he's very, very well prepared. His playing career, his coaching career has really prepared him extremely well. But 
you know, you go from chief operating officer to CEO, there's another level of responsibility. There's another level of scrutiny. There's a level of you figuring out how do I best be myself in this new, um, very public, um, very demanding role. So there's just some feeling out and some progression that has to take place that doesn't happen until it happens, you know, but I think he's in really good shape. I mean, Duke is Duke. That's not changing. They're going to continue to have really talented players. He's got a really good staff. So I think success is there for him. How it plays out, what bumps might be encountered, um, that remains to be seen. There's no way of forecasting any of that. But there will be. I w- the only thing I can forecast is that there will be some bumps, and maybe they, they might not be big ones. They might not be super public, but there are bumps. I mean, hey, you've been a writer for a long time. You're different now than you were when you first started, right? Yeah, for sure. Yes, and you and there's some things that you thought you knew when you started that you didn't, and you only learned them by doing. So it's the same thing, and obviously the magnitude of attention and the the level where that program is under Coach K's leadership for four decades. But he's benefited from that too. So I think it'll be a really fun case study to watch. But I think he's going to do really well. I mean, I'm extremely impressed by him and with him in terms of what he's done as an assistant coach and how he played and how he's connected with recruits and all of that, man. So I just think the package is, is um, high level. And when you got a high level package and character and talent, then it's just a matter of time in terms of um, being consistently successful. So that's my forecast for him. I think he's going to be really good in, the, in his new role as head coach. That sounds good. Well, we will wrap the podcast up on that note. Um, I, I appreciate you joining us, Clark. We love watching you uh, on CBS, especially once it gets to March <laughs> and and things yeah, yeah. Kick off. And uh, and have have a good time decompressing. Enjoy your off season, and we'll pick it back up next year. Well, that was sounds do- good. See, always always great to be with you, man. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, All right, for the ACC Now podcast. Please uh, click on newsobserver.com for more coverage of your favorite triangle schools.